We are jumping back into our series on Matthew. Uh, Jesus is King is our series title. And originally I said it was going to take like 67 sermons, but it might take more. We're we're actually on track. Um, It will take two years, but we'll see how we go. Uh, But we're actually on track, which is good. So we haven't deviated. Um, Thank you to Scott for picking up where... I left off when I had a baby, so you did a great job. That was awesome. And thank you to Richie for preaching um, as, as well, continuing our Matthew series on that fantastic passage, Come to Me, um, All Who Are Weary and Heavy Laden, I Will Give You Rest. We had Brendan and Patrick come and bring various messages, uh, but now we're back into Matthew, and we're into Matthew chapter 12. Uh, to catch us up on the, the book of Matthew, Matthew has told us who Jesus is in the first four chapters, that he's you know, born of God, he's God with us, he's the saviour of the world, that God is pleased with him and he's come with a mission to bring the kingdom of God. Uh, as he goes about, he begins to teach and this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and he outlines this new way of the kingdom, this fulfilment of the Old Testament. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we have nine or ten, depending on how you look at it, miracle stories where Jesus demonstrates the power of the kingdom. So he's got word, he's got deed. And then in chapter 10, or at the, at the turning point, he says to the disciples, look at these crowds, they're so helpless. They need people to go out and tell them the good news. And then in chapter 10, Jesus t- sends them out. But as he sends them out, he gives them a boot camp G-up and it's It's basically expect the worst, guys. Don't expect things to go very well. Expect opposition. Expect hardship. Then in chapter 11, we saw um, that it was again on expectations, that John the Baptist had the wrong expectations, uh, that the people might have had the wrong expectations of Christ, but Christ clarifies it and says who he really is, that he's come to bring rest for his people, for any who are weary, who are burdened, who are needing him. And then we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man with a, was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which of you, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored. 
healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Every night when I put my kids to sleep, I've got four but mainly the older two, Evie and Jasper, they often ask for a story. Uh, they, they want stories. They want stories from my life. They want to kind of know of the, the most interesting things. And I struggle to think of stories because I'm, I, I realize I'm just not that interesting. I just, I haven't taken enough risks. Uh, I haven't made enough, like, you know, uh, just crazy, stupid mistakes. Like, I make lots of mistakes, but they're just not that interesting. Uh, and so I find myself trying to think of stories of other people. Uh, and not only do I want to tell them stories of other people that are just good stories, I want to tell them stories about other people that tell them about other people that are significant to me. So my son, Jasper, uh, his middle name is Gray. Uh, and his middle name is Gray because my, one of my best mates, his name is Gray. Well, his last name is Gray, but we call him Gray. Uh, and when I, I love to tell Jasper stories about Gray because I want him to know his Uncle Gray, you know, parentheses, Uncle Gray. Um, and sometimes I just tell him stories so that he'll understand the type of man, the type of person that Gray is and, and the, the kind of fun that we would have together. Uh, and so one of the stories I like to tell Jasper about Gray is uh, <laughs> it, it gives you a good picture of who this guy is. And I actually tell a lot of stories about Gray to people just because he just does dumb stuff and it's fun to say. Uh, and so uh, one day we were coming home from a week-long camp. We'd been on, we had a, a cool church experience where instead of just having a weekend away, we would have five nights away. We'd do week away, it was called. We were, we'd just gotten home after a big week. Everyone's been staying up to 1, 2 a.m., getting up. Like, it was a massive week. We're all tired. It's 4 p.m. We're in the church car park at Gaimere Anglican Church, where I grew up. And we're kicking a footy around, waiting you know, for various things, people to get picked up. And someone kicks the footy into the tree. Uh, and you know, we're like, oh, man, how are we going to get it down? We didn't have another ball, you know, when you try and throw a ball to get it up, and everyone's thinking, oh, what are we going to do? And Gray's like, oh, don't worry, I got it. And he pulls out his set of keys, <laughs> and Gray gets out his big whopping set of keys, which has more keys on it than you could ever imagine, and he starts to lob the keys up into the tree. And we're like, Gray, what are you doing? What if you get your keys stuck in the tree? Lo and behold, third or fourth time through, boom, there's the keys next to the ball. <laughs> Uh, and so then the next half an hour uh, and to an hour was spent trying to get down the ball and then Grace Keys as well. Uh, and that story kind of gives you an insight into the type of person that Gray is. Uh, and the fun of telling stories is not only just the details, like that's just so dumb, that's a funny story, but it helps you to get an idea of the character 
the person, uh, the personality of Michael Gray. Well, when we come to this passage today, uh, this confusing passage of the Sabbath and all these stories, excuse me, what Matthew is actually doing in this passage is he's telling us, retelling us this story, this great story where all these actions happen. But the point of the story is not so much the details of the story, what happened, but what it tells us about Jesus. So as we study this passage today, the lens, there's heaps of interesting facts in this passage, and as I studied, there's more than you could ever, you know, bring in one sermon. But the lens which Matthew actually wants us to take as we read it is not to get too caught up on the detail, but to see who Jesus is. Through this story, he's painting a portrait, another portrait of who Jesus is, that we might see him truly. So, as we dive in today, don't get caught up on the details. Zoom out and look at who Matthew is saying Jesus is. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage pretty simply in three points, creatively titled Scene 1, Scene 2, and Seeing Jesus. So let's jump into the passage and let's come with this understanding, this perspective. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again and try and orient us back into this, you know, I'm going to assume it's sunny, uh, Sabbath day in uh, Capernaum most likely, uh, which was a Saturday. The Jews had their Sabbath Friday evening to Saturday evening. Uh, And let's read verse 1 to 2 again. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, as we read that, we'd more likely be thinking, Hey, they're stealing. That's the wrong thing. And the Pharisees are going, Hey, they're breaking the Sabbath. So what's going on in this passage? Well, it was actually lawful in Jewish culture and the way God had designed their their economy that you were allowed to pluck grain from other people's um, fields if you were in need. If you were desperate and you didn't have enough money, you could pluck grain so that people didn't have... There wasn't Centrelink and things like that. So that was Centrelink. They went down to Centrelink, got some wheat. Uh, But the Pharisees are not so concerned with the taking of the wheat, but the day in which they are doing it. The day in which they're doing it was the Sabbath. Now, depending on your background, you may or may not have much concern about the Sabbath. I know some of us have a Seventh-day Adventist background, and you'll be repping this passage hard. You know, Joel, uh, you probably looked at this one a lot. Uh, But when we look at the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath is actually a, a holiday for God's people, instituted by God at the beginning of creation. When God created the world, he created it in six days, Genesis 1 says, And on the seventh day, he rested. And he invites us into his rest, this ceasing from creation, this joy that the work is done and now we get to live in his ways. Sadly, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, broke the rest. They they broke God's command and they ended up outside of his rest. And so rather than resting for all of human history, now we toil, now we work, now there's a curse upon the ground. So when God liberated his people Israel um, from Egypt, he set them apart and he gave them ten commandments. And one of the commandments was to go back to this Sabbath rest. 
Six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. This was to demonstrate that they were different from all the peoples of the earth, toiling day in, day out to make money, an agrarian um, subsistence economy where every meal was, you know, on the line. But the, the disciples, or sorry, the, the Israelites had to exercise great faith to demonstrate they really trusted their, you know, God is for us, all those songs, great is your faithfulness. Well, try not working for 24 hours and let the money fall through, let the grain fall through, let the crop go to ruin while you rest on the Sabbath. That's what Israel had to do. That was God's command for them. Yet Israel wasn't very good at doing it. Um, and uh, at oftentimes they went in and out of this practice. But we kind of look and go, oh, yeah, Sabbath, you know, I'll, I'll go to church, the Lord's hour, not the Lord's day. But this is what uh, God said to Moses about the Sabbath. So this will help you to understand what the Pharisees are thinking when it comes to the Sabbath. Exodus 30, verse 15. 31, sorry, verse 15. Um, Exodus 31, verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So it's a lot more serious than, you know, we kind of go, oh, you know, they're just plucking. Okay, any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Not only was Israel to keep every seventh day set apart for worship and enjoyment of the Lord, but every seventh year they were to release their Hebrew slaves. Every seventh year they were to even to rest their crops and not plant a new crop in that soil and rotate their crops. And then every seventh, seventh year they were to redistribute all the land back to God's people. And anyone who had bought and sold land, it all went back to square zero and there was parity again every seventh, seventh year, the year of Jubilee. So this Sabbath concept is incredibly important for the life of Israel, the economy of Israel, the covenant of Israel between them and God, the judgment that if you break it, death will come upon you. And in fact, if you read all the way through to right at the very end of the book of Chronicles, when Jeremiah the prophet, I believe it is, is speaking to the people of God, what he says to them, the reason why they are in exile and cast out of the land is because they didn't let the land have its Sabbaths. The land hadn't rested. You had toiled and worked and not trusted in God. So God cast you out of the land to allow the land to have its Sabbath. In fact, what the, the prophets did in the Old Testament was they accused Israel of not following the covenant of God. So when we come to this story, and we come to the Pharisees, and we come to their, their love of the Sabbath, their admiration for the Sabbath, their need to keep it holy, they have all this backdrop to it. This is a really serious matter. And not only so, but they saw their role as to keep the people of Israel holy to the covenant, to obey the law so that they wouldn't get kicked out again, so that the Messiah would come. And then in an ironic moment, the Pharisees who want faithfulness and law-giving to bring the Messiah encounter the Messiah on the Sabbath in a cornfield. And they accuse him. Now, Jesus wasn't actually plucking grain. His disciples were, it's said. 
but they accuse him of breaking the law. Now, if you read the Old Testament commands, there's only a few kind of ideas about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, and it's not very clear. It says, no man shall work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, over time, over the past number of centuries, had sort of developed, well, we need a little bit more help, God, so what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? And they came up with 39 uh, descriptions of what constituted work on a Sabbath. So things like you could wear a garment, but you couldn't carry a garment. Um, You could carry up to two dates worth of a load, but any more than that, you were carrying a load on the Sabbath, and therefore you're breaking the Sabbath. So they created this big um, system of kind of trying to figure out how does it work. And one one of the measures in there was that you weren't allowed to reap your harvest, you weren't allowed to thresh it, and you weren't allowed to winnow it. And what are the disciples doing as they walk through? They're reaping, they're getting the grain, they're rubbing it in their hands, they're threshing it, and they're separating the wheat from the chaff, they're threshing. And then they're eating, so they're preparing a meal. So according to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law, they have broken the Sabbath. And here is this holy teacher, this rabbi, this man of power, Jesus walking around pretending to be this great thing, watching his disciples desecrate the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes to town, which is awesome. Uh, And there's so much we can learn from Jesus in how he replies to people. Notice that he, he basically asks three questions back at them. And the questions are sort of somewhat of an insult. They're somewhat trying to press into their heart. Let's look at them. Three kind of arguments that Jesus makes. Verse 3 and 4. He said to them, Have you not read? Obviously they had, but they hadn't read it properly. What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, for the interest of time, I won't go into the detail of that. You can uh, read about it in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, but basically, there's, Jesus is saying there's exceptions to the law. And if someone of authority needs to make an exception to the law, that's permissible according to God. Because David broke the law, but was never condemned for it in that instance. And Jesus is saying, my disciples who are with me have permission to have this exception to the law on the Sabbath even though he's granting them their argument that this is actually work, which it probably isn't, because they are with me. Just like David's servants ate the bread of the presence that they're not meant to, my servants are allowed to eat on the Sabbath. The second argument is in verses 5 and 6. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So another example from the Old Testament, the priests would actually do double the work on the Sabbath. They, they had to prepare more sacrifices and do more work on the Sabbath. They worked hard on the Sabbath, yet they're not held in guilt. They're commanded by God to do it. And Jesus is making this argument that people who are serving God and priests in the presence of God are not guilty for working on the Sabbath. And then he says something greater than the temple is here which is really a provocative statement because the temple was the symbol and the presence of where God lived and the covenant with them. And he's saying, these guys are working in my presence. Therefore, it's okay for them to work on the Sabbath. 
And then argument three, verse seven, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, that's a quote from Hosea 6, uh, verse 6. Um, Jesus has already used that with the Pharisees, and still they had not learned the lesson the first time uh, when Jesus was with the tax collectors and saying that I came not to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. And see, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is that you have missed the heart of the law. Your love of the law has overtaken the law of love. You're so concerned with getting it right, getting the obligations down to the perfect description of righteousness that you've actually missed true righteousness, which is to be full of steadfast love and mercy like the Lord. So three powerful questions from Jesus to answer their question. And his answer is, no, they're guiltless. They haven't profaned the Sabbath. But then comes the final blow. And this is one of these moments where Matthew is trying to help us to see more of the identity and person of Jesus. Jesus finishes his sentence with this, verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I can't imagine, I don't know what, how that would have landed on the Pharisees. You guys don't look very shocked uh, by that. <laughs> Remember what the Sabbath is. It's God's rest that God instituted. He designed it. He's the author of it. He defines what is right and wrong on it. It's his day of rest that he extends to his people. And so for Jesus in this grain field to say to these Pharisees, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, is to equate himself a divine place. He is putting himself implicitly in the position of God. The Lord's day is Jesus' day, is what he's saying. I am the Lord of rest. I am the one who has come to bring rest to my people, that shalom, that peace. That's the type of claim that he's making. He's throwing down all types of bombs. And notice too that this passage follows directly from the passage that Richard preached on. I'll read it to you, Matthew 11, 28, 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees were heaping burdens and burdens upon the people, yoking them to the law. And Christ has come to give us rest, to give us a light and easy burden, a burden we can truly carry. And so Matthew wants us to see Jesus in this light. He wants us to see that Jesus is the one who comes to alleviate us of our burdens, our burden to the law, our burden to scrupulous righteousness. And more than that, he's come to give us rest, true rest. So that's scene one. He's trying to give us a little bit of a portrait of who Jesus is. 
that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. But scene two, we get to see how Jesus is, how Jesus you know, kind of lives out his lordship. The Pharisees were lording it over the people, heavy burdens. How will this Lord of the Sabbath lead his people? Let's look at verse 9 and 10. He went on from there, presumably the same day, and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I assume they spoke something like that. So that they might accuse him. So you've got to understand this situation. Here's a guy with like a paralyzed, lame, limp hand. I don't know exactly um, his story or what it looked like. But in an agrarian culture, subsistence culture, unless you were incredibly gifted and educated, the only thing you had was your body to make money. You were a laborer. You worked in the field. You harvested. And to have a withered hand meant you were potentially an outcast. You were considered maybe cursed by God because your hand was withered. Why would God do that? You know, why would you have a withered hand unless you'd sinned? And here he is in the synagogue, which is the meeting place, not in a temple, their synagogue. And they're like, oh, they see a withered hand and they think this is an opportunity to trap him. See how wrong their heart is? See how they kind of go there? Well, let's see what Jesus does. Verse 11, he said to them, Again, questions. Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In the Mishnah, uh, the Jewish people, they, they actually said it is okay to rescue an animal if it's in the point of death um, on the Sabbath day. That's a permissible action. Uh, but if a sheep falls in a pit, it's not necessarily going to die, so you could leave it a day. And so, so it is with the man with a withered hand. Um, he's not going to die today. You could heal him tomorrow. But the reality is, is that anyone who has, you know, a limited number of sheep that value means so much to them, if it's in a pit and could die on the Sabbath, they're going to pull it out of the pit no matter what, because they value that sheep. That represents hundreds of dollars to them. That represents weeks and weeks and weeks of pay. And so even a Pharisee is going to pull that sheep out of a pit. And Jesus uses the argument from the lesser to the greater to show, if you would do that for a sheep, well, how much more is it okay and good to heal this sheep, this human, valuable person that God has made on the Sabbath? So what will Jesus do? They've kind of laid down the challenge. Everyone's watching. Verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it, was, and it was restored, healthy like the other. What an amazing scene that would have been. I mean, a jaw-dropping scene to see this deformed and limp hand kind of stretch out and have vigor and strength and power to it again. The scene of the Pharisees' faces, uh, the, the, the congregation, the disciples, the withered man's hand. I mean, it, just, it would have been one heck of a moment. And in that moment, when he is healed, two things are happening. Number one, it proves that Jesus is from God. 
Because how could you know, God make that amazing healing happen if it wasn't from his power? And by that man being healed, it approves of who Jesus is. It means that God is pleased with him. It means that God accepts him. It means that God has given him authority to heal. And that makes the Pharisees deathly angry. You see, in this moment, as he stretches out his hand, it's, it's perhaps the first real sign and shadow of the cross in the book of Matthew. You see, as this lame hand is stretched out and is healed and restored, it's a shadow of what will happen some 14 chapters later, when Jesus will stretch out his pure hands, and they will be deformed by the nails of a cross. On this Sabbath, he is healed. On that day, in two years' time, Jesus will be crushed. So we have a little shadow of the cross, and the shadow darkens in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Their reaction Rather than amazement, wonder, humility to say, oh, maybe we got it wrong. Uh, Maybe we're not seeing things here right. Maybe we should change our tact. They double down. They go further into their sin. And isn't it curious that on the Sabbath, when they were convicting and, and, and condemning the disciples for working on the Sabbath, they now go and plot murder on the Sabbath. Yet I don't think they would have felt convicted. I don't think they would have seen the hypocrisy. And that's the danger of religious hypocrisy. We often think we're doing it in the name of God. We're doing it for God. But we're actually doing it for ourselves and because of ourselves. And so Matthew wants us to see this picture of Jesus. Who he is, the Lord of the Sabbath, and how he is a merciful Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't come to put burdens on, he comes to take them away. He doesn't come to destroy, he comes to heal. And in the mix of all of this chapter, it can be easy for us to look upon the Pharisees and think, those guys are dumb, like they're just crazy. Like what is wrong with them? How could they be like that? But as I was preparing the message this week, I believe, well, I don't believe, I know, uh, that I was convicted uh, that I myself am very prone to have a Pharisee heart, and perhaps you are too. A heart which is so concerned with getting it right, the rules, righteousness and holiness, and not you know, diminishing what God has called us to do, that at times I, I can be like them, sad to admit. I see something wrong and I go, look, they're doing that wrong again, or, that church has got it wrong, or et cetera, et cetera. This, this heart of a Pharisee, this heart which has a, l- a greater love of the law than the law of love. Or perhaps you fall on the other side. You're like, man, these Pharisees, they just, they have no idea. It's all mercy. It's complete mercy. The whole Christian faith is like, doesn't matter what you are, who you do, nothing matters, just God loves everyone. Maybe you fall on the other side of the coin, that you just have all mercy but no rule, no law, no justice. What Matthew does in this passage, though, is he perfectly upholds both justice and mercy. 
But Matthew, Jesus upholds both justice and mercy. Notice that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus still stipulates the Sabbath. He, he stipulates these commands. He doesn't lessen the command. He doesn't say, get rid of all these laws. Just do whatever you want, guys. He's Lord. He's the ruler. He's the boss. He dominates. He's, he's the one that will bring justice as the judge. But as he does that, he does it mercifully. He does it mercifully. And that's what Matthew is trying to show us in these two scenes. And then, he brings it all together and makes it clear what his point is in verses 15 through 21. And this is our kind of final point which will bring everything together. Point number three, see Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He doesn't kind of keep the fight going. He's made his point. And many followed him. So the, the weak and the broken, they're drawn to him. He leaves and they chase him because they're like, this guy is the, the guy I need to be around. And look at this. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. It wasn't yet his time for his messiahship to reign. He wasn't ready yet to bring the fullness of his kingdom. And then Matthew brings us to this quotation from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 is the beginning of what's called the servant songs in Isaiah that go from 42 to chapter 53. And in these servant songs, it's this prediction, this, this story, this song of this coming one who will liberate Israel out of captivity and bring them back to their God. And Matthew wants us to see that by Jesus being this man, by Jesus doing these type of things, he is the suffering servant. He is the servant that has come, the Messiah that has come. It would have been very, very meaningful to a Jewish audience, not as much to us unless you really understand uh, the intricacies of um, the Old Testament. But nonetheless, Matthew wants to paint this massive placard before our eyes so that we leave here today knowing who Jesus is, and this is who he is. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. Remember the baptism of Jesus, as similar words. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim, look at this, justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Matthew's drawing this attention to, he, he leaves the synagogue and, and does this healing quietly and commands them to be quiet about him in that time. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew wants us to see, he, he brings in this verse, he knows his Old Testament, he wants us to see Jesus is the Lord. 
He is the Lord of the Sabbath. God is pleased with him. He is the chosen servant. He has fulfilled the story. He will bring the Sabbath rest. They had in Israel never fully experienced the rest that God wanted them to have. Jesus is bringing that rest. And Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 picks up on that theme if you want to study it yourself this week. And he wants us to see this. He exercises his lordship with justice and mercy. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That is, he will make all things right over all the earth among all people groups. That's what he's come to do. This servant, this humble, meek servant has come to bring justice, to right every wrong. But how does he go about doing it? Well, he doesn't come as a dictator, as a harsh ruler. No, he, he's so quiet that his voice isn't heard in the streets. He, and what are the type of the people that come to him? Bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. You see these twin facets of Jesus, justice and mercy, lordship and grace that combine perfectly. And the end result is the main application of what we are meant to do today. Verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In biblical ideas, your name is your very person, the essence and the sum of who you are. And so Matthew is directing his readers and God is directing us this morning to see Jesus afresh, to know his name more fully, the name, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, the Lord of justice, the Lord of mercy, and to hope in him. Now, if you've put your trust in Christ, you already hope in him. You've done the most fundamental hoping you could do to lay your eternal life at his feet and say, take me. I trust you to save me. If you're not yet a Christian, this is an opportunity for you to experience eternal rest. Rest from your sins. Rest from your strivings. Rest from your guilty conscience. Rest from the shame that you've experienced in your life. Come to Jesus like the the sick came to him in this story. Like the withered man came with his broken arm. Come to him for healing. Trust in his name and he will give you that rest. And for those of us who do trust in him already, this is a reminder to hope in him again. To go nowhere else. To turn nowhere else for our hope. You know, that idea of hope is where you go in your happy place to receive comfort and joy and relaxation and wellness. At the end of a long week, it might be a a bucket of KFC. (laughs) It it might be just getting that, watching that movie, or it might be just going away on that holiday or being with that person or experiencing that thing. Have your hope this day in the Lord of mercy and come to him. Come to him. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The requirement, recognize that you're a bruised reed. Recognize that you're a smoldering wick. And don't let that recognition turn you away from God, but to him all the more. The strong, tall reed doesn't need help. If you ask people on the street, are you a good person? They will say, yes, I am a good person. Admit it. (laughs) You're not. The bright, burning lamp doesn't seek rekindling. Friends, it is our very weakness, our very failings, our very illnesses and sins and brokenness which qualify us to come to the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. We often tell stories to reveal a portrait, not of just what people do, but who they are. And Matthew has revealed this wonderful, amazing and beautiful portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Would we hope in him, rejoice in him, and rest in him on this Lord's day? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place and for our sins, to bear our burdens, to bear our illnesses, to bear our weakness, to have mercy upon our souls. We thank you for your word that it reveals more of who you are and who your son is, that we have more to revel at. We have more to fill up our soul. We have verses to come back to, to preach to ourselves that you don't turn away the bruised reed, that you don't smother the smoldering wick, but instead you welcome the weak, the vile, and the poor. And so as a church, we come to you, Lord, now. We ask for mercy for our sins and our struggles of this week, and we ask for grace to live for you and to share the love of you in our city, in our suburbs, in our family lives, in our workplaces. And may you be glorified as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.